Our God, we come before you and we recognize that it is all about you. Lord, with all of us sitting here, we, we just proclaim it's not about us. It's not about us and what we want. It's not about our plans. God, it is all about you. And we cry out with the psalmist, Psalm 115. To your name alone be the glory. Not to us, not to us, O oh Lord. But to your name alone be the glory. God, I confess to you this morning that my words mean nothing, have no strength of their own. But Lord, your word has power. Your word is true. Your word is what we turn to now, Lord. Because we know it is yours, it is from you. Lord, we ask for your word to pierce our hearts. To shape and mold each and every one of us to be what you've called us to be. We pray this in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen. Several months ago, I... Uh, was listening to a pastor speak, as pastor I've listened to many other times before, but he said something that really caught my attention. And uh, he said, one of the things that's really, that I've been thinking about a lot over the past few weeks and months, is I've been asking myself, do I really believe what this book says? Now when he said that, it kind of caught me off guard, because I thought to myself immediately, yes, of course, I believe what this book says, and are you questioning the truth of God's word? And so I started to bow up a little bit and get a little excited and worked up because I was wondering, maybe is this guy questioning the truth of God's word? And so I'm getting all excited and worked up and everything, and I think that, that you would agree with me too. If we ask the question, is God's word true? Do we believe this word? You would say, yes, I believe this word is true. And I hope that every single person in here would say that. If you don't, I would be glad to talk to you after uh, the worship service and try and convince you of that. But he, thought, he said this, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I, I'll, uh, I, I've, been, I've studied under some of the smartest professors that there are in the Southern Baptist Convention and in the world. I would love to sit down and just show you how I believe the word is true. And most of us would say that. We would say, yes, God's word is true. That's what we believe as a church. We say God's word is inspired, that it came from God. We say that God's word is inerrant, that it has no errors in it. We say that God's word is infallible, that it's incapable of having errors in it because it comes from God. God cannot lie, he cannot speak falsehood, so if he speaks the word, then the word must be true. So that we say that. We would agree with that as a church uh, fully and wholeheartedly, I would hope. This is a battle that we have gone through as a convention, some of you all may remember. We have men in this room right here who are involved in a battle over the past 20, 30 years where some people were standing up in our seminaries and uh, throughout our convention saying, no, the Bible is not true. It's errors here. There's errors here. Jesus really didn't say that. This miracle really didn't happen. So men of God stood up and said, we will not stand for this. This is a hill that we will die on because we believe God's word is true. If it is not true, what hope, what foundation do we have? So we will stand and say God's word is true. And so when he said this, I'm getting worked up, I'm getting bowed up, all excited. God's word is true, ready for a fight. But after I listened to him for a few moments, that's 
I realized that that is not exactly what he was saying. He was asking himself, do I really believe that God's word is true? Not in the sense, are there errors in it? Are there things that are said in it that didn't really happen? But do I so fully believe the word of God and its commands that I live them out what he commands? And so that question has been running through my mind for the past several months. Do I believe what this book says? I believe it's true. But do I believe its commands so much that I will follow the commands of this book no matter what they are? And so that's the question I want to pose to you this morning. Do we believe what this book says? Because having thought about this and read some more, this book makes some commands and some demands of Christians that can be considered nothing less than radical. I want you to listen to some of the things that Jesus commands, that he says to his followers. He says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That is a radical statement. That is a radical demand of the cost of following Jesus. Because I think about my wife over here and the amount that I love her. I would at any moment die for her and lay down my life for her. That is the love that I have for my wife. But he says, the love that you are to have for me, the commitment that you are to have to be, is so much beyond anything that could be had for any other person. It pales in comparison. A radical command of following him. Then he goes on, he makes other statements, something like Luke 14, listen to this. He says, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Have you read that before and thought about that? None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. He really doesn't qualify that in any way. He doesn't say, oh, maybe for this person or maybe for that person, but he makes this blanket statement None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. These are radical statements that are made by Jesus. Radical demands of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so we are going to look at some of these and we're going to think about some of these and ask ourselves, do we believe what this book says when it comes to some of these kind of things? Will we follow when Jesus' demands are so hard? As we look through these, I'm not going to provide you with a whole lot of answers, I don't think, as we look at some of these tough demands of Christ. I am working through this. Jen and I are praying about this, thinking about what is it going to look like in our lives to live this kind of radical life. But what I ask for you to do is to consider and think in your own life, what's it going to look like for me to live out these commands? And so we're going to be thinking about those. Normally, I like to work through uh, one specific passage of scripture, preach through that expositionally, but we'll be doing something a little different this morning, jumping around to a few different passages and thinking about these. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Acts chapter 2, which we're, we will be starting at this morning. Acts chapter 2, we'll be beginning at around uh, verse uh, 42, as we think about some of these things. And 
we will ask ourselves two questions this morning, two basic topics. Do we believe what the Bible says about being the church? And Lord willing, if we have enough time, and Ricky doesn't turn the heat up to try and drive me out and finish preaching early, we will uh, examine the question, do we believe what the Bible says about missions? And so we'll start out, do we believe what the Bible says about being the church? I'm going to start out with the easy part first, because some of the things that we get into get a little harder, so I figured that start with the easy and not scare us too much before we get into some of the harder demands that, uh, that we find. So let's look at this passage. I want to read this to you. This is a passage that describes what has happened to the early church. Jesus has risen. He has gone on uh, to be in heaven. And now we have this situation where uh, Pentecost has come. Peter has preached. uh, 3,000 have been saved. And we find these early converts, these early Christians here together. And we have a description of the early church. Listen to what it says, uh, verse 42. Remember, these are the early Christians, just been baptized, young Christians. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So now as we're going to ask this first question, do we believe what the Bible says about being the church? We're going to notice a couple of characteristics about being the church. And the first characteristic that we're going to notice is that being the church means that we are constantly together. Take a look at this passage and see how these early Christians were always together. And now verse 44 they, they were always, they had everything to get uh, in common. They began selling their possessions. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. They were continually doing this themselves. They were always together in worship. Not just once a week, but day by day, they were together in the temple being the body because they recognized that they were the body of Christ. They were living this truth out. And so they were constantly always together. Now, for a lot of us in this room, this really almost a non-issue. A lot of us are regularly together. We're almost constantly together, some of us. Some of you all I see here as many times as I am here. And so I know that a lot of you are here all the time. And now I know a lot of you all are here or with one another throughout the week all the time. You're at people's houses. You're doing things together, you're working together, you're serving together, uh, you're going on mission trips together, different things like this. And the people of the early church were constantly together. This is a command that was given. We remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, If you have your Bible, turn over to there. We'll be doing uh, sword drills through some of this, so I hope that you uh, remember that from when you were a child, and you can turn very quickly to these passages. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 This is the command that's given. It goes through verse 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own for assembling, assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the characteristics of being the body of Christ, one of the demands that is placed on us as disciples, as followers of Christ, is that we will be constantly together, that we will be worshiping together. It should be a pain for us, it should be a heartache for us to not be together with the body. Now, for some of us, that really is a non-issue almost because we are here together so much. But I recognize there may be some in this room who this may be a starting point for you thinking about, do I believe what this book says? Because the book says you must be constantly together. Do not forsake the assembling together. And you perhaps may only attend, come to worship, maybe once a month, something like that. And you maybe need to think, do I take this command seriously? Because I am commanded as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, to regularly be with other believers in worship. So do we take that command seriously? Now that is the easy part of what I'm discussing this morning. And I um, will say that much, much of what comes after gets a little tougher as we think through some of these demands of Christ and what it means to be a follower of Christ. All right, so do we believe what the Bible says about the church? We must constantly be together in worship. And now the second uh, focus that I want to put on this as we think about what the Bible says about being the church is our love and care for one another. According to Scripture, as we see the example of the early church, our love and our care for one another should be sacrificial. Our love and care for one another should be sacrificial. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Turn over there. Acts chapter 2, started again at verse 42. And now I want to remind you that as we read this, we are not reading about a group of the super spiritual. We're not reading about a group who have been to seminary and have all the answers and something like that. We are reading about a group of these early Christians, just been saved not too long before, remember at Pentecost. Now, we, these are the early Christians that we're talking about. This is how they're living out their life. They were continually devoting themselves to apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Verse 42. Go in verse 43. They kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders, signs were taking place to the apostles. They were always together. Verse 44. Listen to this. They had all things in common. And verse 45. This is the extent of their love and their sacrifice for one another. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Let me say that again. They began selling their property. They sold their fields, sold their homes, sold their possessions, whatever they had, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That is a radical statement about what the early church was doing. Someone was needed in the community. All right, I've got a field. Let me go sell it. Someone was hungry, all right, let me go sell my pots right over here and let me take care of you. That was radical kind of sacrifice and love for the body. And what I want us to understand is this is not really an isolated incident that we find in the New Testament. This is more characteristic of what we see over and over and over again in the New Testament as the early believers 
looked at their possessions, looked at the stuff they had and what they thought about it in relation to how they loved one another. All right, so next Bible drill, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to see another example of this, of how the early church is living this out, this sacrificial love for brothers and sisters in Christ. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. This is uh, Paul writing about uh, a group of Christians in Macedonia. And I want to read this, and we'll come back and kind of highlight some of the things in it. Now, brethren... We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God." So let me summarize. Let's take a look at what's going on here. These are a group of Christians, a group of different churches in the region of Macedonia. And so they hear about a need for some other Christians in a whole different area about how these other Christians were in physical need. Now here's what Paul says about them. Verse 2. These Christians in Macedonia who want to take up this money and give it to their fellow brothers, sisters in Christ says that in a great ordeal of affliction, They were going through some kind of persecution at this time. So these Macedonian churches, they want to take up money. They want to send it. But right now, they're going through persecution. And then listen to what else it says about these Macedonian Christians. It says that they were in deep poverty. These Macedonian Christians were in deep poverty. The Greek for that is to the bottom poverty. The bottom of the bottom, the absolute low of the low when it comes to poverty. Their poverty was absolutely extreme. Nothing you and I have ever experienced before in America. Absolute, utter poverty, no food, nothing, hardly that they had. This is what they went on to do. It says that beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, with a, verse 2, with a wealth of liberality. Greek there is open-handedness. They gave with open hands. With whatever they could have, they gave. Listen to what they did here. Verse 4. This was the condition that they were in. Absolute, down to the bottom, utter poverty. And yet it says in verse 4, they were begging, begging, please let us give. Please let us help our brothers and sisters over here. You know what the, the key in this is? The thing that just kills me and convicts me, they didn't know these people. They were begging and desiring and longing, saying, please let us give to these people that we, they're not a part of our church. But we beg, let us give whatever we can. This This is radical, radical lifestyle that they were living, a radical kind of love and sacrifice and giving that they were living out. How is it possible? How is it possible that we see this so many times throughout the New Testament that churches were doing this? I think it's because they really took seriously 
what Jesus said about possessions and about stuff, about the cost of following him and what it might mean. Some of the things that Jesus says are mind-blowing. Turn over to Luke 14. Luke 14, verse 28. Here's what Jesus says. This is the, the heading in my Bible says, Discipleship Tested. It says that there were large crowds going along with him. And he turned and said to them, now these are crowds, all these crowds following after him. They're coming after him, wanting to follow him. And so rather than turn around to him and say, hey, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're following. He turns around to him and says, okay, you want to follow me? Here's what it will cost you. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Listen to this from the ears of a first century person. I want you to go and carry whatever we would think of today, all right, uh, the electric chair uh, or the... um, lethal injection. I want you to go carry that along with you because that's what your life is going to be if you follow me. Radical things that he's saying to them. And he says, for which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and is not able to finish. You all are coming along. You're following after me. I want to tell you what it's going to cost you because I don't want you to start following me and get halfway through and find out that it costs too much and turn away. Because when you start following, you need to know the cost before you follow. And verse uh, 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I think the ESV translate that, translate that as renounce. Recognize, say, it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me, it's God's. My bank account, God's. My home, God's. My possessions, God's. My cars, God's. Everything I have belongs to God. It's not mine to begin with. And so this is the attitude that we see of these early Christians. They took that idea seriously, that it's not theirs, it's God's. They took the idea that they're supposed to love each other seriously. And so when someone had a need, they put those two ideas together. Jesus said, I'm supposed to love one another. Greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his friends. I'm supposed to have the attitude that my possessions are not mine. Okay, you have a need, I sell what I have to meet your need. That was radical living. Radical living as the early Christians. When it comes to our stuff, a lot of times Jesus' demands are pretty radical. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. Let's see this played out a little. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. This is a story that you know very well. It's the passage about the rich young ruler. Rich young man is in some translations. And you know what happens. There's a young man who comes up to Jesus. And this young man is desiring to follow after Jesus. And so Jesus then talks to him and and says to him, verse 18, uh, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. 
And so this young man comes up following after Jesus, and we would expect us today, we would think, hey, that's great. Let me, just come on, let me kind of teach you along as we go. Here, let me, let me show you a prayer that you need to pray. We, you know, we would think these kind of things as we would do our evangelism on this guy, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus looks at him, and then he makes an astounding statement that he commands to him. He says, one thing you lack Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Go, sell it all. Give it all away. You'll have treasure in heaven. What would we think if we were that guy going up to Jesus and Jesus said to us, okay, you want to follow me? Go sell all you have, give it to the poor. That is tough. That's a hard statement. Now, before you uh, get riled up and think I'm asking you to, to go sell everything that you have right now, uh, I'll go ahead and say that I am not asking you to do that, and I don't think this text is asking you to do that right now. This text right here, this command, go sell and all you have, is spoken to one individual person. That this, so this is not a universal that is commanded to every single follower of Christ. Not every single follower of Christ is commanded to go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor. But one thing that we have to see in this passage is that at least some are. At least some are commanded. If you want to follow me, it's going to cost you to go sell everything and give it to the poor. Now here's, here's what slays me in this as we read this. Jesus makes this unbelievable command of him in verse 21. If you've got the red letters, you can see there, one thing you like, go and sell all you possess. Look what it says right before that. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus loved this man, and then he commanded him to go do this. Jesus' command to this man was not so that, hey, I don't want you to follow me. I don't want you to have stuff because I don't want you to have fun in this, in this world. It wasn't anything like that. Jesus' command to this man was motivated out of deep, passionate love for this man because he knew exactly what this man needed. Look what he says just after this. Verse 23. How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus knew, of course, as God, recognized the danger of stuff. The danger of riches, the danger of wealth. And how he knew that those things can captivate our hearts and captivate our minds and captivate our desires and our longings. And Jesus said, I love you so much. I want you to understand that this stuff does not matter. I want you to live for things that are eternal, not pleasures that will last for only a few years. I want you to live for things that will last the treasure in heaven. Later on, Peter says in 2 Peter that there is coming a time when fire will consume the stuff of the earth and those things will be gone. Jesus says, I know that is coming. I want you to love me and not the stuff of this world. And so he says, those things are dangerous. One thing that you and I have to recognize is that we would definitely fall into this category of wealthy. 
And one thing for us to remember and to recognize as a follower of Christ is that our stuff can be so dangerous. I look at my life, and it's confession time here, I look at my life and I can look and see how easy it is for my heart to start thinking about stuff. How easy it is for my heart to get wrapped up in a house, a car, wanting to move up to the next bigger, better thing, an iPod, an iPhone, whatever it might be, a, a sport, whatever it might be that's so easy for my heart to get wrapped up in the things of this world. And Jesus said, it's dangerous. I love you so much, I will tell you about it, and I'll warn you about it, and I want you to live for stuff that is eternal. So if it costs you everything for you to understand that, so be it. Because I want you to understand what true treasure in heaven really is. And so one of the questions that we have to wrestle with, we have to think about, is what is our attitude toward possessions? What is our attitude toward stuff in this world? Do we constantly yearn for the next bigger, better thing? Are we constantly on the lookout for how we can get to the next bigger house or the next shinier, nicer car or the next you know, gadget, gizmo, whatever uh, that it might be? What is our heart's desire when it comes to those things? Again, I am humbled by the way the early church looked at some of their stuff and kind of crushed when I look at how I look at stuff sometimes. 1 Timothy 6, chapter 6, verse 6. This is what Paul said. He said, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we had food and covering with these, we shall be content. Gosh, Paul. <laughs> Add a little bit more to it. Make it a little easier. Now he says, with food and covering, or food and clothing, we'll be content. Where's our contentment? Will we be satisfied? Will we be content with food and clothing? Jesus' command, was, what was the greatest command? What was the greatest command that was given? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And God is determined that his followers will truly do that. That, he, that we will love him above all things. And so God says, if your stuff is keeping you from loving me like that, then gosh, let it go. Focus upon me. I want your heart above all other things. And so this is one of the things that I have been wrestling with. What does it mean to be, for me to be a follower of Christ in relation to my stuff? What is my attitude I should have? If one of you has a need, will I you know, cash out retirement? If one of you is in poverty, will I sacrifice for you? 
and New Testament goes on and on about how the, these early Christians, you know, they were, they were sacrificing when it came to the gospel, sacrificing when it came to the poor, and how, how they were constantly doing this. And I, and I want to look at my own life and ask myself, what is it that I believe in regard to these things? Am I willing, am I going to do that? One of the things that when we look at passages like this, I, I think it's important for us to realize and understand is that when we read these passages, we don't ever see anywhere where there is a specific command that Jesus or Paul says, you may only have a house and a donkey or anything like that. You know, it's our times we might say, you, might, you, you may only have a, a house and one car. We, we don't see anything like that where there's some specific command that says, we may only have this and not this. And one of the reasons I think that is the case is so that we will go before God with these passages and we will wrestle with them and look at these and look at our own lives and begin to ask ourselves, what is it in my life that I love? Are these things taking too much of my heart? And so we'll struggle with these things. And that's why I think sometimes in Scripture we don't see some things laid out specifically exactly so that we will go before God as husbands and wives, as families, as whatever, that we will go before God and struggle and wrestle with these things. God, how is this going to look in my life? How is it going to look for me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ sacrificially? Because he wants to shape and mold us by us going before him and letting the word work in our lives. And so when we come to this, I have no answers to give you hardly at all. Uh, other than what I said before about uh, a being regular in church attendance. That's pretty clear. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That one, pretty easy, straightforward. How we live in regard to possessions is a little bit more difficult. But I challenge us to look and to consider those things. We will have a time coming up, actually, uh, uh, before too long, in which Bill will come before us and he will ask and say, hey, look, we're going to need to build a new building. What's going to be our attitude toward our possessions, toward sacrifice, toward things like that when that comes? We have right now a, a process in which we have people going to Peru and we will be asking the many people in the church to go and we'll be asking to take seriously. Do we take seriously the command to go? Matthew 28, it's a specific command in the Greek. No other way to translate it, but go. How are we going to take, how are we going to live out that command? We don't have enough money. We're struggling with uh, with finances at the time, what will we give up in order to make those kind of things happen? What will we give up for the gospel? If we don't have enough money to go to Peru, will we give up uh, cable? Will we sell this in order to be able to go take the gospel somewhere? What's our attitude when it comes to these kind of things? And so, uh, again, I tell you, I don't have a whole lot of answers. So you're welcome to ask me about any of these passages, scriptures, whatever, that I may look at you and say, I really don't know about how exactly that plays out in our lives. Uh, what I want to do is I want to wrestle with the word of God and I want it to shape me and mold me. I don't want my heart to shape and mold what I think the, the word of God says. I want it to shape and mold me. So this morning, I guess my final challenge to you is just, will you take some of these tough passages of Scripture and will you look at them with open hearts and open minds and think, what will my family look like for us to live out some of these things? What will my family look like if I sacrifice?
for someone else here? What will my family look like for the sake of the gospel? What will my family look like for X when it comes to some of these tough things in Scripture? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come before you and we are grateful for your word. We thank you that, that you have given us your word. And God, we thank you that uh, it's not entirely dependent upon us to follow you. God, I thank you that you worked in my heart and that you showed me who you are. But God, I, I come humbled thinking about some of these radical things that you say. God, help me to, help me to not live for what I want but to see everything in my life as for your glory and for your purposes. God, I pray that you'll give me and Jen wisdom as we wrestle with what is it going to look like in our lives to live out a sacrificial love for one another in this room. And I pray that you'll help all of us to think through those things as we wrestle with these things, as we seek to be faithful to your word. God, let us not look at the world around us as an example for how our lives should look, but let us look to your word as an example for what our lives should look like. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.